Hello, everybody. This is Charlie. Um, I'm here talking again this week for the second podcast in a row with Cedar Coons um, about her sister having killed herself a little over two years ago and uh, what that has been for her to um, manage and to come to grips with and uh, what what she can say about how she's done that, how she's uh, gotten through things, how she survived, how she took care of things she needed to take care of, and how she has coped with uh, her own really troubling emotions about the whole thing. So we're going to get into that. Um, I want to say to all of you that, that listen to this one, I want to suggest that if you haven't listened to the one before this one, uh, and you want to sort of hear the whole context that led up to the suicide um, you might want to listen to the, the hour that we did last time. That would be on my website, charlieswenson.com. It's also on the website of NEABPD, uh, which is char- which is a borderline personality disorder.com. And, um, and, and if you listen to that, you'll have an idea of who Cedar is, who her family was, where they lived, what they did, uh, and how things evolved up to the point where she, uh, where things were really spiraling downhill. And I would say, you know, if you read Cedar's blog in her website, cedarcoons.com, about this, by the way, she has a lot of blog posts, and if you are looking for this in particular, as I've learned, you want, you want to go to the, her blog posts are sorted out by date, you want to go to November and December of uh, 2017, and that's where you're going to find the blog posts, um, uh, five in a row, about uh the suicide and, and what, what it's meant for her. So um, I suggest you do all of those things. But it did become clear from reading the blog that uh, there was a real downhill spiral that took place at the end of her sister Carlton's life. Um, and uh, there, there are probably a number of places one could say, oh, it began here. No, oh, it began here. No, no, it began here. And one of those points, it looked like that affected the whole family heavily, but also Carlton in particular, was that her father uh, died shortly after his 100th birthday party, um, and the father was a uh, was a, a patriarch. He was uh, looked up to. He was a uh, seemed to be the embodiment of a lot of things that were of value in the family, and he was and to lose him was a huge loss for everybody, and it was a loss for. Carlton that plunged her more into a depressive state and then a number of impulsive uh, types of decisions uh, where, and you might date the spiraling down to that and then an increase in intensity. Uh, there was a, there was a hospitalization uh, for self-harm, uh, which was, which was, had not happened before that happened shortly before the suicide uh, during which she ended up that by saying, no, don't worry, I'm not going to do anything. And then she seemed to be on a somewhat better course uh, at the very end, as sometimes happens, and making it very hard to interpret. Well, wait a minute. Uh, how's, how uh, lethal is the current situation? And so it was uh, hard to know exactly what to do, but it, that led up to the suicide. So at that point in the blog post, and I'm going to hand this over to Cedar to sort of pick it up from here, um, Cedar wrote that, one of the hardest things of all of going back over all of this has been that there actually is a surveillance video from a gun shop and her sister uh, had gone in and bought a gun and um, 
And, uh, you know, that's on video. And she came in, she came out, she came in. She finally just did it, and then she went out to her car. And it was uh, really shortly after that that she uh, just went uh, deliberately to a place along a highway. So I'm going to ask Cedar if she can pick up and start to tell us what happened at this point and and also why was this the hardest thing for you? I can imagine it, but I don't want to rely on my imagination. (laughs) Well, thank you, Charlie, and hello, everyone. And um, I'm really glad to be here again uh, talking about this event, this series of events in my life, which um, have been some of the most um, painful and important uh, struggles that I've gone through um, that having to do with the loss of my um, dear sister uh, to suicide. And so picking up where where Charlie um, left off uh, on the morning of the day she died, which was October 6th, uh, 2015, she um, had had breakfast with her uh, uh, boyfriend who was living with her at the time, and they agreed that they would meet back up in the afternoon. She got in her car and drove off. She was bright and cheery, as is the case sometimes with people when they've resolved <clears throat> what they're going to do to end their lives, and she drove um, uh, up a highway, um, I-64, toward Lexington from Louisville, and uh, she stopped in a little town called Shelbyville, and she went into a kind of mom-and-pop pawn shop, and the reason I know all of this and know it in this detail is because after her death, she we were very in close touch with the state police when they were looking for her body and then when they were investigating her death. Uh, and there was actually in the pawn shop a the kind of you know video that you would have from a surveillance camera. and they they actually offered me to look at it, and i um, I did not want to see it, but just knowing what the contents of it were was very painful for me because uh, it was, I could see that it was a place where someone could have intervened. Um, you know, someone could have, if if she had called me, uh, that morning she had not picked up the phone when I had called her and I left her a message. And if she had, you know, called me back or she had called someone, it's that what if, what if um, thing. So, at any rate, she went in, she looked at a, a gun, she went back out, and then short, I think probably to her car, and then uh, she went back in and she bought, you know, a, a, what we used to call a Saturday night special, a little handgun. <clears throat> and, you know, she had been out of the hospital uh, for about um, just just shy of two weeks, which puts her right in the super high-risk uh, time. Uh, she had so many risk factors. But, of course, there was no background check. There was no no nothing. She bought the gun. She got in the car. She got back on I-65. She pulled off uh, at an exit uh, called Wadi Petona, uh, you know, driven by it many times. It's a rural, 
road. She went off the rural road. She went uh, down a country lane and, and on a little dirt lane. She pulled off, got out of the car. Uh, she went and sat up against a tree. She smoked a cigarette and she put a bullet into her forehead uh, between her eyes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, of course, later we know that the, the landowner there heard the report and wondered about it. Uh, um, we did not, that, that afternoon I came home from work. Uh, we had, my husband and I had dinner and we were, um, sitting in the living room talking about our day getting ready for bed uh, when we got a call from my other sister saying that she had not come home. Uh, I guess around supper time, uh, when it was starting to get dark, um, her um, Bill, the man she was living with at the time, uh, called my sister, my other sister, Raleigh, and said she hasn't come home. And, uh, and they um, were worried and then shortly thereafter, they called the state police, and then they called me. <clears throat> and um, I have to say that as soon as I heard that she hadn't come home, I knew she was dead. You did. I, I did. Tell, I, tell I, me about how do you, what, how did that did, how make did you I know, know that? that? I just, I don't know. I think it was one of those things where, when something is really terribly wrong. With someone you love, you get a feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just, a, it was not a rational, it wasn't like, oh, well, she hasn't come home, she's probably dead. It was a feeling. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah. we spent the night, a sleepless night, uh, in contact with the, you know, we called the state police. They did actually start looking for her um, the next morning. Uh, we were trying to track her cell phone um, and find out where she was. Um, it's kind of um, I, incomprehensible to me now, but uh, at the time I got up, I got dressed, I went to work. You know, it's like work is a meaningful activity. It is something that is comforting and, and I guess, distracting and... I just had been up all night, and I had clients to see, including clients who really needed to see me. <laughs> and I was able to compartmentalize and put it aside and go into work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and around, uh, her body was found at three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next day, I got the call um, around. Two o'clock my time. I'm two hours behind Eastern time, and I went and I canceled my afternoon and went home. Uh, mm-hmm. I was numb. Um, I was um, I was numb, completely numb, at first. Uh, once I got home, I broke down uh, and 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 sobbed and and. Uh, you know, just felt um, frightened, really frightened. I think that's really the main feeling that I felt at first was terrified. Like, 
how could this have happened? Uh, this, uh, what's going to happen next? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, and a feeling that something terrible is going to happen, descend on all of us. And I think with suicide, that's a common feeling from what I've read. Mm-hmm. The feeling that there's this terrible pall that comes down over the whole family of like, this is a this is a disaster. This is something from which I'll never recover. That's not mm-hmm. true. It wasn't true, but it's felt that way for a long time. Like you we know, have been dealt this blow. Yeah. And you, you know, uh, uh, someone will see if they read in your uh, blog the um, that you had this experience. I mean, this. I don't mean to get us to there right now because this is such an amazing moment and so important but uh, it seems like that would be also your experience of her once she was dead it, yeah it really uh, really captured my attention and uh, reminded me of some other things but it was you really talked about it in a vivid way that's really unusual compared to normal experience and and made me mm-hmm. think based on some experiences I've had, including the death of a friend of mine that you knew, uh, mm-hmm. Cindy um, yeah. Anderson, that um, your relationship with somebody who's dead, um, there's a period of time where, you know, it's not definable very easily. It doesn't fit right. within the usual boundaries of experience. It's sort of like, I remember when my father died, for instance, and I was with him, and I was just stunned. I looked around the room because I was sitting with him and we were, uh, we had been watching NFL football together. And when mm-hmm. he died, um, when he finally died <clears throat> um, and the nurse confirmed, yeah, he, he stopped breathing. It looks like he is dead now. I just was blown away. I mean, I knew it was mm-hmm. coming, but the mm-hmm. fact that the fact of it happening didn't fit my brain. And I looked around and I thought, well, where is he? Well, you know, if he's not there now, well, is he here in the room somewhere? Is he up in the corner? Is he still hanging out with me? Has he put himself inside my body? Is it, did he go to heaven? Mm-hmm. It's really strange. Uh, and, and you sort of captured that, that you went through per- a whole period of time where, yeah, she was kind of loose in your house. Um, yes, I... I did feel that. You know, it's interesting. I was with my father when he died, and we were, you know, he went through a long period of where his breath was slowing, and he would go for periods of time not breathing, and then, you know, and and then when he actually slipped away, it was so, it was so peaceful and so right, and I never felt him any, I didn't, I didn't, uh, had that same experience, but with Carlton, I felt that she was lost, yeah. and uh, that yeah. and and I, you know, it was my I don't know if it was it just my own anguish that I that she was lost to me, but there was an anguished feeling, almost as if she was present and she was reaching toward me, and I couldn't. I mean, again, this is this is sort of the the sense our minds try to make of this experience. Yeah. But it was visceral for me, and I really um, I hadn't slept the night before. So when I got home, I I kind of crashed. I went to bed, but I was awake in the middle of the night, and I felt 
I went into the bathroom and I felt that I was her ghost was in there. I don't, mm. you know, it was like I felt her presence. Yeah. And she was in anguish, and I was in anguish. So I don't know, you know, I couldn't, yeah. like you said, you know, was he inside me? Was I, you know, what was going on? But it was that the unquiet dead. Yeah. Uh, and I felt it for 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 um for weeks. Mm. I felt it after her memorial service, which I'll talk about later. I felt it after the graveside service. Uh, and then I, and then gradually it's, it slipped away. Uh, mm-hmm. and what I felt, <laughs> I mean, you know, I have a friend who is, um, who is sort of a psychic. I mean, I really began to understand why people would go to a medium. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and she assured me she's fine. You know, she's okay. No worries. Mm-hmm. And I had, by that point, I had stopped getting up in the middle of the night and feeling that she was, haunting me so i was able to accept that and it you know gradually i did come to feel that she was when i would touch in i mean she was in my heart and it was okay mm-hmm. but there mm-hmm. was that transition yeah that we as human beings you know we just don't know quite what to make of that we you know there's no data <laughs> on what actually happened yeah. so you can believe whatever you want but as an empiricist it's difficult for me to believe stuff but I do have feelings about it, and that yeah. was my feeling. And I kept when I when I would imagine, and for a long time I could not imagine her going in and out of that pawn shop, going to that place, sitting down, smoking that final cigarette, making yeah. that choice to leave us. I couldn't go there. Yeah. Now I can, and it's been very healing for me to accept reality as it is. Do you think and that that go there? Yeah. Not in, two, in your own um, understandable desire not to watch that video. I mean, do you think? I was thinking what a moment that was compared to everything else you wrote about Cedar and and this whole story. When you highlight that one moment, I can really get that because there's a, some way in which somebody might be desperate or go in and out of trouble for a long time, like your sister did. Yeah. And yeah. and then you start to wonder, is she going to make it? And she started to wonder towards the end. You wrote in your blog that she started yeah. to wonder, am I, am I going to get through this or I'm not going to get through this? And then all of that is still in the realm of thought and imagination mm-hmm. and like, oh, how worried should I be? I mean, and, and you got very active in the end of her life. You were on the phone a lot with her, but it's mm-hmm. sort of like. Uh, and and probably other people were worried too, and so a whole swirl gets going of worry. Um, but but uh, but you know the counterpoint to that is to actually see somebody walk into a gun shop and buy mm-hmm. a, and look hesitant, go in, go out, go back in, buy a gun, and then move forward. And you know at that point, oh my God, there's there is no interpretation needed here. I mean, right. This is this is right there. This is like the difference between reality and uh, speculation. I mean, you don't have to think. Will she kill herself? It it makes suicide suddenly so much. In a way, it uh, elevates it to like, oh my God, yes, this is a big decision. This person just made one of the hardest decisions one can make in one's life. And mm-hmm. at the same time, it it brings it down to a very mundane level. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's a gun mm-hmm. and. 
By the way, did your family, did she grow up around guns or did she, did, did you No. Um, you know, my father was a World War II veteran and he had guns, but they were always locked. I never saw them. I never yeah. even, ever saw them. They, we weren't hunters. Um, you know, we just, we, no, my parents didn't have guns and yeah. she didn't grow up around guns. It wasn't like she um, was a hunter or anything like that. No, not yeah. at all. And to my knowledge, she didn't own a gun prior to this. Yeah. Um, so it was a very strange experience for her to do that, no doubt. But yeah, she was, absolutely. by that point, to even she go was in very a pawn focused. Shop. What? Yeah, she was, to even go in a pawn shop. To even go in a pawn shop was outside, way outside her range. That's so right. She, she just did. She she then had her eye on the end. Um, she was dead me. within an hour of when she bought the gun. Within an hour, yeah. So she was she was at the final march, you might say. Yeah. After having got probably thought about it a thousand times before, and here she was doing it, and uh, so yeah, it makes it a very um, yeah. Risk makes it so real and painful. It reminds me of the research that I recently heard about um, uh, of the videos that have been taken on, mainly from webcams on the uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, yeah. one of the most uh, iconic places uh, from which to to die and, and commit suicide is to jump off the bridge. And so right. they have a lot of videos. And and this uh, suicide researcher had studied. All of this, and uh, and he's uh, and he was presenting about it, and you know, the there there are people who get to the edge of the bridge. They go up, and they're standing there. They climb over the fence that would allow you to jump, and and then uh, people get that far, and of that group, a certain minority actually then jumps. Um, right. And the ones that jump, it turns out it's very distinctive. When somebody is coming, whether it's a policeman, and that's why you have a webcam, or you or a family member who is driving up the bridge and getting out of the car and running after the person and yelling and saying, "No, come back." They're, the the ones who go on and kill themselves are much more likely to not even flinch. They don't look back. They don't respond. They don't even interrupt what they were doing. It's as if they're already gone. It's as if they have yeah. already, they're so focused. Um, whereas the person who, if you yell to them at the end and they turn to you, even for a moment, the likelihood of them actually then jumping is very small. Um, it's, wow. There's something very, something very distinctive about the person who's actually about to do it. Um, and, you know, we have to assume Carlton had gotten to that point and like you said, it maybe that helped to explain how she could go out earlier in that day and appear mm-hmm. to be perfectly okay, you know, mm-hmm. cheerful yeah. because uh, she was resolved. Maybe she already had, in her own sense, found some acceptance with this particular solution. Um, yeah. Obviously had a very specific idea of what the solution would be. And yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah. it's just, it makes me churn. Very chilling, yeah. Yeah, it's chilling uh, to think of it and uh, to, to watch these, to, to see these kind of things and then to, to hear what, that she did that by then. So you, you then, you, you flew out there and you, what, what were you confronted with? You, you then went and did you see her body? I did. I did. Yeah. Um, I went 
I went there the, the next day with my husband, and, um, you know, I have another sister uh, who is, uh, from whom I, with whom I've never been close and from whom I am now estranged. This is really the second, you know, terrible loss that's associated. I, I have my other sister who, uh, Carlton was the middle sister. I'm the youngest. Yeah. Raleigh, the oldest. Um, I have, um, we had, were never close. Uh, there was always, uh, some difficulty. Uh, Carlton and Raleigh were not close. Uh, I think there was a feeling of, um, uh, envy that Carlton and I were very close. Um, and after my father's death, I had had virtually no contact with Raleigh except is what we had to do to wrap up the estate, which was difficult. And then she contacted me when Carlton, when she was starting to be very, very worried about Carlton. Of course, I was already worried myself. Yeah. So Raleigh, um, invited me to stay at her house, which, <clears throat> which I did do. She, on the day of the, the day before the, the graveside service, she kicked me out of her house. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it, it's basic, and that was that, you know, we spoke at the graveside service, and that's the last time I've spoken with her, um, which is a tragedy and a loss, and but also a relief in many ways. And um, so I went to, to Raleigh's and... Um, uh, my daughter and her husband came and we made arrangements, um, to have Carlton's, um, body cremated and to have the, the, the visitation at the, at the funeral home and, you know, to open up the gravesite. She was gonna have her ashes interred at the gravesite, the family gravesite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, that you know that whole process took a couple of days, and uh it was i you know i it, I was in, in a blur I don't remember it very well um, I do remember the visitation uh, because similar to i mean Louisville is one of those places where people live there for generations and generations and right. they show up for things like this right and so you know people I went to kindergarten with uh you know, boys I dated in high school, you know, they were, they were all there. Um, mm-hmm. And it was very comforting to be surrounded by that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and her, you know, she had a good turnout. And she was a local celebrity, so she had a big crowd at the uh, memorial. I, get, I, I wrote and gave the eulogy. I did the, the obituary. I, you know, I went through all, I mean, this is like, you know, this thing like me going to work on the day that we hadn't found her body yet. You know, it's sort of like I can go through those steps and in some ways they were very, it, I feel very grateful that I can function in those kinds of situations. Yeah. Um, it was important to me to be, I'm a writer. Uh, it was important for me to write her obituary. It was important it for was, me to give her eulogy. I mean, there were many people that wouldn't or couldn't do those things at that point. Um, right. They would just say, look, I can't do this. I can't even think straight. I'm, I'm filled with grief. And other people, um, you know, like you're describing yourself, you, you know, uh, 
actually, you know, sit down and do these things at that point, and it's part of the process somehow. It's part of, it's part of coming to terms with it. Um, it's not just a terrible burden at this moment, but it sounds no. like, I mean, it seems to me one of the challenges for you from that point on, and it was one of the things I was going to bring up, but I think it comes up time and again over the over your description of how you've coped with all of this, is that it seems to me you needed one set of skills uh, to be able, to, in a way, to shut down uh, emotional processing enough to be able to take care of what was, it sounds like, an incredible number of tasks to take care of and just stay on. You, a lot fell to you for lots of reasons, and you took care that, of a lot, including yeah, these. That is Mm-hmm. My my sister Raleigh said, "You do it. I can't do it." And she was, she was, um, you know, she had been involved with Carlton's hospitalization. She had gone to uh, get her and, and had called, um, you know, the the ambulance and so forth. And she she was more stepped back after that. She was angry, and um, and she mm. was devastated uh, after the. Um, and and humil- felt felt greatly ashamed. Um, you know, my family was Catholic. She's Catholic, um, so there was a great deal of of like you know this is wrong, and and um, and and also she just I mean she was just in grief. This is her sister. She and and that's not that what wasn't her way of of coping. You know, I think it, I mean this may seem. Um, I think I take after my father, who, you know, my father was a military man. He had five, during World War II, he had five battlefield um, promotions. You know, mm. the guy was like he could could do that kind of thing. Mm. And when when he died, I, I was his executor. Uh, you know, we were all on paper executors, but I did that job. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I already knew how to talk with the with the funeral home people and how to get all the paperwork and get the death certificate and all that stuff and what you needed a death certificate certificate for and so forth. And yeah. you know, in the case of Carlton, she as is often the case with people who 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 die suddenly, uh she her affairs were not in order at all. I mean they in fact <clears throat> it was chaos, complete chaos. Hmm. She had two divorces. She had these two, my nephews, um, who, I mean, one of the things that I had to do was she and, and her first ex-husband, the father of her two sons, were in, he had sued her 16 times since their divorce. So they were in a constant legal battle. Oh. He wasn't even going to bring one of her sons to the funeral. Oh. And I said, no, you know, he needs to come and I'll pay for it. <laughs> you know, it's like, and uh, so he eventually did pay for it and he did eventually agree that it was important to do. Yeah. But um, so there was a, there were, there were just a tremendous number of details to deal with. And, you know, nobody was going to do it if I didn't do it, except possibly her second ex-husband. Um, might have been um, somewhat willing and basically fundamentally a good guy, um, but not not having the skill set to, to do it and also uh, not really that wanting to or willing to. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And actually, the reason why my sister told me to leave the house was because uh, because I stepped up and said, I will be willing to be the executor. And she didn't want me to. Oh. Um, because she wanted to have a court-appointed executor. Oh. And yeah. uh, the court-appointed executor would have been very, very expensive and very, very... Um, I mean, essentially, my sister left uh, left a, a suicide note, which left money to me and to my other sister, oh. and not to her children. Mm. Mm. And I knew that Kentucky state law uh, would not find that suicide note to be of sound mind because she even references her mental anguish during it, in writing it. But also that her children, her disabled sons, that was their inheritance, and that we had no right to that. Yeah. And we wouldn't. It wouldn't even happen in court. So it would just be a big waste yeah. of time and energy and wrong. Yeah, but you're saying. I mean, this was a wedge, though, between you and your older sister. That's your right. Older sister. I mean, such a. a, a that's just one of those moments that you just hope doesn't happen in life that puts you on absolute opposite sides of an issue like that, that you, know, you could go either way, but it's uh, both are understandable, but you know, it, it, there's no way, there's no simple way around it. It put you at odds with each other and there, it isn't like you have time to just let that sit and work it out. Um, that's so, right. I mean, it, it, you know, really, um, it was just one of those things where it, it happens a lot in families, I think. When someone dies and there's a disarray in the estate and there's a fair amount of resources, uh, often there can be a, uh, a battle over who's going to control those resources. Exactly. Right. And um, this happens in families all the time. And it, whether it's, you know, grandma's pie safe, you know, or it's, you know, the $700,000 in someone's IRA, you know, it's what, you know, who's going to have that money? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that my father did, which was, you know, to his enormous credit, was that he he divided everything completely equally mm-hmm. and he spelled out in his will everywhere every single piece of personal property went I mean you know down to things like his clothes mm. Mm. and uh, you know of course Carlton didn't have any of this and she had a big house full of antiques and art and and jewelry and clothing and furs and you name it you know well, what did happen is we eventually found a will. Um, her second mm-hmm. ex-husband said, oh, yeah, we did a will in 2013. I don't know where it is. And sure enough, you know, we, we were able to go to the courthouse and find it. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't that hard. But I hired, I hired an estate attorney. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in the will, she appointed her, her husband was the first executor, but in the case he couldn't serve. It was me. She never told me about this. Mm. Mm. Of course, she never said, you know, will you be my executor? (laughs) 
But um, so, right. you know, again, in my own process, this was, you're right, it was very distracting. But it also gave meaning to, okay, I can try to make sure that Alex and Peter, her two sons, who are now left without a mother early, you know, earlier than they would have been, that they get mm-hmm. what is rightfully theirs, that no one takes that from them and that it is, you know, so including mementos from her home and things that, you know, that, that, that you know, she left for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it gave me meaning, which gave me a way to, you know, to cope. It was part of my distress tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it was. It, look, yeah. I I think that you. Um, it's a, when I listen to this, it's an example of what I think is uh, that this is a particular thing. What it includes a suicide, um, and uh, adds you know huge huge other things to come to terms with. But one of the things it seems like is um, this kind of, any death. Like we talked about each of our fathers, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, right. opens up a, a, a little area of uncertainty and mystery, and, mm-hmm. and and death like this opens up much more than that. But almost every almost every death, it just doesn't. There's what I've been struck by. I'm seeing by this age. You know, I'm 68, and I've known people who've died, and I've known enough people who've died. I've known people who took their lives, and. Um, that it never you, you lose control of yeah. the end. You know, even if it's a a death that you think is scripted and it's going along, and somebody has a certain kind of illness, and it's clearly they're going to die from it. They do die from it. Still, things at the end do not. They often don't go the way you thought they would. Something comes up that is not settled. Um, something comes up afterwards that's not settled. It's the whole period leading up to, during, and following a death. Uh, and if you can look at any level of analysis, but look at the family. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really, it, it, of course, it dramatically changes everything. Um, and some people say, no, it doesn't. This person just got up and went to work the next day, and they do this and this. But actually, if you, if you get down to details, probably it's, it requires such a rearrangement of mm-hmm. roles, a rearrangement mm-hmm. of, you know, when my mother died, for instance, she was the one that kept all of my, me and my four siblings kind of knowing what's going on with each other. She was like right. the Grand Central Station. And, and so the loss of her, I thought, oh, we'll make up for this by how we relate to each other as siblings. We never really did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you lose something with the, with the, a person and and then everybody rearranges on their own and sometimes in coordination, but most of it, you know, without in being in coordination. And, and, and so it's not surprising that people collide against each other and different values collide against each other. And, and mm-hmm. with a rearrangement, you know, there's both kind of like an accommodations go on and, uh, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, the, an uh, end to accommodations. Yeah, and the end to accommodations and all of a sudden mm-hmm. new accommodations are needed and, so it really throws, uh, I was struck by that because you said, you know, there was this leading up to her death, it was a certain way. And, uh, but I think, I think because of many things, including the nature of her, 
which was to keep her worst stuff, her worst experiences, her worst feelings, um, and her worst practices, in a way, out of the uh, wider public eye. Um, Yes. uh, You might say it's suppressed, or that she's just learned a habit that, no, you don't share these kind of things, um, and that that it's supported enough by the culture around her. I'm reminded when I thought the culture around her, I thought, do I know anything about this culture? You describe it some, and I think, you know, I grew up in a little town of mostly working class people in Oregon, and uh, mm-hmm. and so, no, I don't relate to this. But then I thought, you know, I really do. I mean, I've, in a way, I've known so many people in my adult life, and um, I, am, I play golf. And so mm-hmm. if you go to certain golf courses, and you may know this because I think, you know, Louisville, Kentucky is probably a huge amount of golf courses around there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, you go to a golf course, and let's say you're having a totally shitty day. Things are actually terrible, and you have an illness, and you, you're with somebody else who just lost a spouse, and you're getting in there, and you go to the golf course, and you get in your little cart, and the guy that's, if it's a fancy golf course, you've got somebody that's starting you off the first hole. And mm-hmm. <laughs> from the moment you get there and they take your golf clubs and, and they, they ask you if you need anything, you go hit some golf balls and then you get to the first hole. And everybody, if you say to somebody, hey, how's it going? Everybody says, it's perfect. Right. Think, things are great. Really great. Thanks. Right. And you know, if you know the person or if it's you yourself, you know, things are terrible. Um, right. And right. How, how can things be perfect? Uh, how can things be uh, fine or great. It's kind of a way of coping with the fact that we're all living, you know, on a, on a shelf in the, in, you know, just one step away from a volcanic eruption of, of right. magma that was going to kill us all. It's like, wow, how do you just, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a posture. And I think it sounds like your sister had this kind of posture in her own life. I assume that it grew out of the culture and that there were cultural elements that would support it, and people thought of your sister as as a celebrity, and she, you know, be mm-hmm. a beautiful person, a brilliant, mm-hmm. talented person uh, from a yes. good family, and all of this, mm-hmm. all of this. But actually, she's somebody with two divorces and lost many things, and couldn't keep herself on track, and probably had a ton of failures, and and when no one was looking, she would be depressed, maybe unto nearly suicide. Um, and even you, it was stunning to me, Cedar, when I read this that. That even you, who knows everything you know in mental health, and yes. and then knows your sister, that it was surprising to you to learn so late in life uh, how depressed that she would actually have real depressions, and you saw it at the end. But uh, I think you wrote that it was sur- surprising to you that Raleigh had said something about her being diagnosed with a bipolar disorder and you were feeling yeah i guess i've seen the mania parts but i've never seen the depressed parts and i just think wow she she not that she did it sort of schematically or manipulatively but she really was able to hide the ugly parts of her emotions she really was you know she it, it, it is amazing given that you know i'm a mental health professional i'm a suicide expert i work with people all the time who you know, are in these, and I know all the risk factors. I mean, the day that she went in the hospital the first time, I was teaching the suicide risk protocol. Yeah, I I, in that. my bones, I, I knew. Oh my the, God! You know, I knew these things, and um, at the same time, we didn't have the family risk factors 
um, you know, she did not, you know, she, you know, uh, you know, very passionately disavowed um, suicide as an option. Uh, she said she would never buy a gun. That gun, it was too violent. She wouldn't want to leave it. She would laugh and say, you know, I'd never want to leave a corpse like that. I mean, I asked her, I asked her all these questions. Yeah. You know, and but it, but on the at the same time, she was so capable. She would go to ground when she was not doing well. You know, she would just hide. Huh. And I do think that that was part of the culture. You know, you don't show that side ever. You don't, you know, you never show, you never go out with your slip showing, you know, or, I mean, you're all, it has to be perfect. And she was better than the average bear at making it look pretty perfect. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, part of the reason why I never could live there, I left when I was 17 and never went back, is because that was, I couldn't live that way. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't hide that and live in that because there's also a thing of like if what do, what happens with the negative emotions when you don't acknowledge them? Well, they don't go away. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. they come back in all of these other ways, whether it's you know drugs and alcohol or or um, you know gambling problems or incredible. Uh, uh, you know, just this depression and suffering. And it, that is very rampant in that culture, but it's all stigmatized and hidden. Yeah. And, um, but everybody knows it's there. And it's, it's talked about in whispers. You know, there's a whisper, um, always going on. So, huh. you know, it's, uh, I mean, one of the things that went on after her, you know, of course, after she was buried and I went back, and that's when the grief, um, you know, kind of hit me like a Mack truck. And I spent a few, uh, you know, weeks um, kind of not doing that great, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really, I was crying every day. I was... Um, uh, having a lot of difficulty um, fulfilling my responsibilities at work, I did. I did, um, you know, cut back. I took some leave, um, mm-hmm. and it was a very hard time. And then, the second week of December, I had to go. We had difficulties because we had to. It was the man who was living in her house was also attracted to the idea that he was going to. That it was in her. She, he was going to get some money from the estate, and so we couldn't get we couldn't get him out of the house. Once I got appointed executor, uh, I was able to basically get him out of the house. Uh-huh. It was hard. It was hard enough. It was hard. It was hard mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. I had to go. My daughter went with me, and we had to, you know, um, get the house in, you know, assess what needed to be done to put it on the market. Uh, do something with her clothes, distribute some of, get, you know, some of her personal property distributed to family members and friends as, you know, as mementos, get the stuff for, of course, for my nephews. That was a, that was like the, you know, two weeks before Christmas or maybe a week before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the most surreal 
I was still having the visitation, you know, the feeling that she was present. Mm. And here I was, you know, sleeping in her bed. Mm. Uh, it was, mm. luckily my daughter oh my was God. there and she, she right. was just wonderful. And we, the together, she loved Carlton so much and Carlton, uh, loved her. And so we grieved together and we did all this work and it was very healing. Mm. We mm. hired a real estate, um, um, executive who came in and, and, you know, they did all these, you know, inspections and figured out what, what kind of work we had to do. It turned out we had to do a massive amount of work mm. on the place. Mm. Um, but mm. it really, you know, I, that was like, I had really felt the grief at the, you know, the beginning of the grief, um, after coming back from the, from the memorial service. And then I feel like the be, the end of the beginning, if you will, <laughs> was clearing out her house. Mm. Mm. And that's when, you know, and after that, the tears would only come, you know, very sporadically and often, you know, completely unanticipated kind of. Right. And I never had the, the sobbing and the, and the loss of the sense of being in control of it again. It, it, mm-hmm. that beginning part, which was mm-hmm. so, those were very hard days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was November and early December of 2015. Seems to me, Cedar, when you say this, that the, um, like the, um, video at the gun shop or the pawn shop, um, it's another moment in the whole process. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's very um, sens- sensory and very present and very mundane. It's like you have to clear out the yeah. house. That, right. that means going through the house where she has been and, and where exactly. she has sat and where she has walked and where she has her stuff. And it's like you're really like going through her when you do yeah. that. This, it sort of brings you right down to this. And it, it reminds me of how many times my, my guess is you've come across the same thing in your work is that how many times after somebody has lost a spouse or somebody, a child or yes. an adult or a, a parent or somebody very important to you, there is the loss of the person and yeah. there's the, the person is no longer there. That, that's, that, that is a piece of work itself. Like, oh my mm-hmm. God, he's not here anymore. And you go out in the street and you see people and you say, oh, there he is or there she is. And it isn't that person, but there's something that reminds you they're very much present oh, in your yeah. mind. Right. And yes. then there's another thing of not only are they not there day by day, um, their absence is there. <laughs> so there's like, yes, we lost a dog that was very important to us. And we would sit at night and we would be reading or watching television or something. And then my wife or myself would think, oh, of course, the dog's over there by the fireplace, as usual. And then you look. Right. And you realize, no, she's not there. I mean, and it's once again, it's like, oh, my God, I think of this is what grief work is, is the repeated encounter with the absence of the person or with the presence of their absence. And and then this thing, though, that you're saying, I'd never thought of it this way, but it's like a routine ritual marker of this is that there's another level of acceptance uh, yeah. to deal with their stuff. Um, yeah to deal with the relationships that they've left uh, that then, mm-hmm. then 
you have to attend to one way or another or and to deal with their actual stuff like going to the house or going like in this one family this woman going to her 22 year old son's room after he right. was dead and leaving it oh. as it was for two years um, yeah. and and saying good morning to him each day this this kind of thing where you know you there's no way you can accept everything at once when it's an important relationship and it's sort of like when you wrote to, wrote about acceptance and coming to terms, it really got me thinking about what what is that? What is acceptance? I mean, it's it's not one thing. It's not like I went <laughs> one day I didn't accept it and the next day I did. It it really is now. Maybe I'm accepting that this person had a tough life, or maybe right. maybe now I'm accepting that I didn't know things before that helps to explain this. Maybe now I'm accepting that. I didn't do everything maybe I could have done, but I didn't know what I could have done. And now I don't know right. if I'd do something. The whole thing about uh, did I do what I want? Do I, am I okay with what I did? Um, that's right. something everybody has to cope with, especially with a suicide. Um, that's so, so true. And, you know, with my father's death, of course, he lived to be 100. He had, you know, yeah. he had his 100th birthday party and six weeks later he was dead. You know, it's like he was like, he had that, that 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 full arc of life. Uh, his death was peaceful. When I went through his stuff, I I was able to just cry, I, but I didn't feel anguish. Mm. And going through Carlton's things, you know, finding her journals, reading, you know, her seeing letters of mine that she'd saved. Mm. Um, right. You know, she wasn't someone who readily expressed a lot of love toward me personally she would say oh yeah i love you you know but there wasn't like wasn't like we again that was part of that culture it's not a you know a real effusive kind of culture and but then mm. that she'd saved all my letters you know yeah um <clears throat> the 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 and then dealing with the uh the fact that you know her touch was so you know, all of her art, all of the paintings that she'd made yeah. that and um and her jewelry that she that she created and uh and then also at the same time the fact that she had two septic systems, one at the house and one at the barn, both of which were failing. Huh. You know? Right. And that she had she had never gone in and changed the beneficiary on an annuity that was, you know, half a million dollars. Mm. And it was going to go to her second ex-husband, mm. you know, because mm. she never changed the, mm. she never changed it. Right. So that money, which could have been available for her sons, was going to go to a man who already had plenty of money, and there was no way. So there was no way we were going to be able to talk him out of taking it. Right. Right. And right. we were going to, and the estate was going to have to pay the tax on it. And these were the kinds of, you know, so not just her. The beauty of what she left behind, but the disarray, you know, this, this, you know, the, the, the difficulty, the, um, the, the, just all of the detail that, you know, uh, that I was going to have to deal with as the executor. And, well, that's, um, that's the thing is that then you're, you're, you're not, like I said, you're not just losing her, but you're losing somebody's uh, legacy or, or what are the consequences of the, what they failed to do, which you might not have known about. Um, right. Is another level of acceptance that, I mean, the fact that you're two years out from this or a little over two years is, 
and you say, okay, you've now come to more, um, more, more acceptance and more forgiveness than before is, yeah, yeah, but it, it's, it's not been a pretty tale. Um, no, I was angry. I was really angry. Mm. Uh, at, at, at some of the choices that, I mean, whether they were choices, some of the, oh, of the lapses for her. Uh, and mm-hmm. then her first ex-husband sued the estate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Of course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was that whole mm. thing and just trying to keep my eyes on the goal, you know, to mm. try to preserve as many of her resources as possible for her, for her sons. Mm-hmm. And to have to also make sure that the kinds of things that she gave to them, which were things like, you know, trips home and, you know, nice things that they wanted, nice clothes. You know, they basically they have social security disability. They they mm-hmm. live one lives in a group home, the other lives in a in an apartment, but has like a case manager and so forth. That yeah. they had some of these. That they still had the nice, a few nice things, you know, that yeah. they uh, had come to, you know, <clears throat> my older nephew used to go to the farm every weekend and mm-hmm. spend the weekend at the farm. And that was like his, that was the, the good thing that made life worth living for him. And so his mm-hmm. grief process was enormous because suddenly he was at the group home, you know, seven days a week. And that mm-hmm. was, he'd never been there before. Right. Seven days a week. Right. So to try to make sure that they had some of these things and, uh, that kept me on track and, and deal, and then suddenly I went, my role changed where I had had a role with my nephews, but I wasn't, suddenly I was in a role that was much more, much more like their mother in some ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, you know, I sounded like her. I had similar, um, you know, sense of humor and so forth. And I was on the phone with them every day, which had mm-hmm. never been the case before that. Mm-hmm. 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 And so these were ways that both, these were things that were both represented big changes and big commitments, but also represented consoling. Having a relationship with Peter and Alex um, was comforting to me, and it mm-hmm. increased after her. Um, and it also helps me to understand, you know, understand some of the, that and getting sued, you know, <laughs> it's like I wasn't being personally sued, but the estate being sued and dealing with the attorneys, that was her life. That was a lot of what she, you know, mm-hmm. couldn't talk about, didn't show to the world that brought on a tremendous amount of suffering for her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Look, Cedar, um, I'm, I'm looking at the time, and uh, uh, yes. we, we're going to stop in a minute. So let me say this. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm experiencing such gratitude of you sharing these things. I really am. It's very touching to me, and that you're telling about this in a level of detail that, of course, one never gets in a situation like this, um, where you, and, 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 and it also opens up the obvious, which is there's so much more to say. Um, and, and, and in fact, the ultimate thing I'm hoping we, we're going to get to. So basically, to make, long story short, I'm, uh, you and I talked briefly before about this, but my preference would be that we schedule to go on and do another one that includes getting to, uh, some of, um, now, how did you do these 
things? Uh, how did you stay on track with some of these things? How did you use your mindfulness uh, practice and mindfulness principles or skills, you might say, to uh, navigate your way through this and be able to at the same time be effective with such practical things and also at the same time allow yourself the emotional experiencing that's required to go through this um, and not uh, suck it up and not just suppress it, um, which had been yeah. a, a pattern that really did Carlton in, I think. And yeah. so I'd like and, and get to other things, too. So uh, will you would you be willing next week to do another one? Well, I would love to do one next week, but I'm going to be traveling, uh, okay. so I cannot. But about, I would like to do one very soon. Okay. So let me get back to you about when that would be, but I would think it okay. within the next two or three weeks probably. So okay. let me thank you uh, again, and um, and be, I'll be in touch with you, but uh, let's plan another one because uh, it opens questions, and I just hope that some people care about going this level of depth into things there's nothing very neat or easy to wrap up about this and and i really well, want to get to what it, true. what it means and i to appreciate be your pardon i appreciate your gratitude i it, you know it, it is it is part of my process to be sharing this because i've mm. worked in the field of suicide you know for mo- all my professional life and it's it's really um it's really a, a whole different story when it happens you know, in your immediate family, and, when it and I want Yeah, yeah. I think right. it, it could be meaningful to a lot of people to hear it. I you. hope it is. That's my yeah. my genuine hope is that it is helpful and and healing for people to know some of these things that they are things that happen all you know happen to other people too. Okay, so we're going to stop. I want to uh, tell you to to be well. I always imagine you Thank out you. in these wonderful hills of of uh, New Mexico and uh so and and uh and I'll be in touch with you about the next one. Okay, thank okay. you Charlie and you thank be well you. as well. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye.